1: and baby luna this week on the show science reporter at member station kpcc jacob morgolas and the host of good luck america and a writer for vanity fair peter hamley let's start the show
2: <laughs> hey y'all i'm elise hugh in for sam sanders it's been a minute welcome to you and our guest today science reporter for member station KPCC in Los Angeles, Jacob Margolis. Hey, Jacob. Hey. And Peter Hamby, host of Good Luck America on Snapchat and contributing writer for Vanity Fair. Hey, Peter. Hey. So this week will forever be the week that ASAP Rocky was introduced to the American congressional record.
3: It's true that the president speaks loudly at times. And it's also true, I think we primarily discussed ASAP Rocky.
2: That was EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland speaking in testimony this week during the House impeachment inquiry.
1: Have any other rappers ever been uh, included in the congressional record?
2: The context here is that ASAP Rocky was detained in Sweden for an alleged assault. And President Trump wanted to get him out because Kim Kardashian and Kanye West asked him to. That's a real sentence.
4: (laughs) They have a hard line into the White House these days.
2: And now you're hearing No Limit, the 2018 hit by G-Eazy featuring... A$AP
3: Rocky. Yay!
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Uh, time to unpack the other news of this week. Each week we ask our guests to describe their week of news in three words... Peter, you're up first. Your three words?
4: My three words, Elise, are Democrats talking abortion. Hmm. As you know, or might not know, because the ratings weren't great, there was a Democratic debate this week. Host Rachel Maddow asked a very important question of Elizabeth Warren. Just this weekend, Louisiana reelected a Democratic governor, John Bel Edwards. He has signed one of the country's toughest laws restricting abortion. Is there room in the Democratic Party for someone like him, someone who can win in a deep red state, but who does not support abortion rights? Senator Warren. Look, I believe that abortion rights are human rights. I believe that they are also economic rights. Warren dodged the question. (laughs) Uh, So did Cory Booker. So did Bernie Sanders. The question of whether Democrats should support uh, Democrats in the South, like John Bel Edwards, the now second term governor of Louisiana... I do think there's a better answer to that question than just saying I blanketly um, support abortion and I'm not even going to humor Democrats who oppose it. Um, I interviewed Stacey Abrams a few months ago. Mm -hmm. She ran for governor in Georgia. Uh, She lost, but she's a Southerner, right? Like she's a progressive hero, but she's a Southerner also. And her answer to me when I interviewed her on my show for Snapchat was that um, I – oppose what John Bell Edwards thinks about abortion. I would argue with him uh, till I you know, lose my voice. But I would rather have a Democrat in office uh, than a Republican who's going to kick half a million people off Medicaid, than a Republican who's not going to support education funding. And I do think that right now, one of the challenges of the Democratic presidential primary, again, it's a primary, but they're talking to Democrats and having fights about taxing the wealthy and sure. splitting hairs over health care. Who's talking to the larger country as a whole? How can Democrats grow the tent? President Obama has been talking about this actually in the last few weeks that Americans are kind of more interested in incremental progress than revolution and Democrats can't be consumed by purity tests.
2: But are there that many Democrats in the South left, Um, especially because so many of them have more socially conservative positions?
4: I think it... It's probably folly to think that Democrats are going to recapture state legislatures sure. and federal seats in the South, but it's a margins game and it can matter. Think about Doug Jones in Alabama. Think about uh, Bashir, who just won the governor's seat in Kentucky against Republican Matt Bevin. Those are flawed Republican opponents that both those Democrats ran against, but they were elected to four- and six-year terms uh, in these states, partly by motivating base Democrat voters, but there are still... Persuadable voters out there in this country. And just to pivot back to the presidential race again, 8.5 million people in the last election switched their votes from Obama to Trump. 2.5 million people switched their votes from Romney to Clinton. People change their minds and can be persuaded. And I think heading into the next election season, I think Democrats uh, need to be a little more mindful about growing the tent.
2: And it's so crazy because Demo- the Democratic Party has traditionally been known as the party of the big tent. And so, what does that tent look like now? I guess there's it sounds like you're saying there's because of these purity tests, there's a there's some tension there.
4: Well, sure. I mean, right now again, they're speaking to base activists in Iowa, in New Hampshire, these early caucus and primary states. They need to get fired up Democrats out to vote for them. That's the game. That's the ball game in the yeah. primary, right? But Go to South Carolina, where you and I have both spent a lot of time covering politics. Mm -hmm. There are your sort of croaky-wearing white bros around Charleston, right, who are (laughs) a little more moderate. There's also African-American voters who are much more culturally conservative than a lot of Democrats actually think they are. And they go to church every weekend. Um, You know, they have questions and can be queasy about this stuff. Again, there are lots of voters around – the Democratic primary, who aren't just living in Iowa right now, and I think that once you get past Iowa, you have to talk to them and persuade them.
2: Jacob, did you watch the debate on Wednesday?
4: I actually did not.
1: Fatigue. I did not. You know what? Um, I think I had childcare duties, <laughs> and I just kind of had to take care of that stuff. I was. I've also been pretty sick.
2: Also, the debate happened on the impeachment Sunland Day. The Sun, the big long, you know, Gordon. Yeah, Sunland I kind of
1: tuned into that for throughout the
4: day as well.
2: Peter Hamby, how is impeachment playing out in the competitive states where you have been on the
4: ground? What's interesting is that, one, you mentioned that long impeachment day and debate day. TV ratings for these things are bigger than normal for cable news. Hmm. They're actually not that great, though. 11, 12, 13 million people are tuning in every day, right? That's a fraction of the country who's watching this stuff happen live. But do that's stick... huge for cable news. And do they sure, stick that's around a... all day, like oh, through all those hours? I I don't think normal humans are. Okay, it's tough okay. to measure, but no. Um, at least that's big for cable news. That's an incredibly low bar. Eighty uh, percent of the country reported watching some portion of the Watergate hearings live. We live in a radically different time where people are getting fragments of information from Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, cable news. They're watching the recaps. They're you know busy with their families, and even journalists who care about this stuff have lives.
2: Even ha- journalists have
4: lives. It is a challenge for. Democrats and the media to explain what is going on here.
2: Jacob Margolis, you're up. Your three
1: words. My three words are shootings feel normal. And this is obviously talking about the shooting in Santa Clarita last week, of which I went out to go cover. And they don't feel normal, obviously, in that they feel okay. But when I actually went out that night to a memorial for uh, one of the students at central park in in Santa Clarita, and talking to the students, I was struck by a number of things. First off, I asked them when you first heard about the shootings, like when you were in school and you heard that they were happening, what did you do? How did you respond? Did the active shooter drills help? jeez And it was really interesting to hear their responses and so Uh, immediately entire classrooms basically everyone moved to barricade themselves they shut off the lights they grabbed weapons and they then proceeded to text and dm uh, loved ones and friends assuming it was going to be possibly the last messages that they sent and you know there's no drill that can prepare you for that and i asked them did the Was uh, Did you go through that process because of the active shooter drills? And they all said, basically, no, not really. Um, The active shooter drills made it so that it felt a little less kind of foreign to us. And it felt like it was more for the teachers to kind of keep things organized. Hmm. But for all of them, it really came down to shootings are so common. We talk about them so much in the media. They happen so much in America that they knew instinctually like what they needed to do and that they might need to fight.
2: And it's not just these kids that are victimized by the lack of feeling of safety, right? It's almost, I mean, the fact that all kids have to prepare
1: for shooter
2: situations means that there's this kind of
1: subterranean fear at all times. And that's another part of this, is that I asked them, why Santa Clarita? Why your town? And but, you know, just trying to understand, you know, was the community, you know, is this something that kind of felt like it was bubbling beneath the surface? And all of them said, like, why? Basically, why not Santa Clarita? Like, none of us are surprised that Gosh. this happened. We knew that something like this could happen. And, you know, at the park that night, what was interesting to watch and what was kind of heartening was that when the media wasn't bugging them, including myself, they were all sitting in circles and laughing and crying and talking and comparing Snapchat and Instagram DMs and trying to understand exactly what happened and how they were supposed to process this going forward. And I stayed there until all of them went home. And I kind of watched that normal high school thing where it's like kids trying to find rides, who are they going to hang out with, that Mm. sort of stuff. And part of me was like, they absolutely went through an unimaginable trauma that they're going to have to contend with for the rest of their lives. But to have that community and have those fellow students that you can go through that with, that you could talk about those feelings with, is also really important. And I hope that anyone who needs help obviously gets it.
2: Jacob, thanks for sharing Thank that. you. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week with Jacob Margolis, science reporter for Southern California Public Radio. And Peter Hamby, who writes for Vanity Fair and hosts Good Luck America on Snapchat. My three words are a pun. We not working.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, he gets my pun. Oh, I get it. oh, okay.
2: It took a minute. It took yeah. a minute. Yeah. WeWork announced it was laying off 2,400 employees this week. It's about 20% of the global staff, all part of the ongoing fail of WeWork, which was once valued at nearly $50 billion. Investors were sold with a lot of lofty talk about community and millennials changing the way we live and work uh, by a guy named Adam Newman. He famously wooed the Japanese gazillionaire Masa Son from SoftBank, uh, who is the head of the largest tech investment fund in the world, to give him $4 billion in investment after a 12-minute meeting.
4: <laughs> As someone who works for a tech company and yes. has gone through an IPO, um, really sympathize with these employees, it is it's really easy to buy into a mission and a culture um, of a place like that and really believe in it. Especially at a place like WeWork, when you can kind of actually see it every day, like you can go to these spaces and see people doing things. I have talked to a couple of people who work in tech who were just saying that WeWork was basically an investment in real estate. Real estate, mm-hmm. yeah, right. It just
2: feels like so emblematic, though, of this scammy culture that we're growing up in. Mm-hmm. Um, or that millennials have kind of come into our 30s with, with Theranos, um with politicians. The
1: cult of personality and believing that someone is a god. Mm-hmm. And Adam clearly was not and is not. And I don't think anyone is. And I think we give a lot of these CEOs a lot more... You know, some of them are clearly good business people, I guess, and have invented interesting technologies. But the cult of the – Mike Isaac. Founder. Yeah, the cult of the founder is clearly detrimental to plenty of people.
4: Our our culture and our media celebrated tech and tech founders for the last 15 years. And investors and founders, as much as they are heralded in our culture and have been for the last decade, are flawed people too. And – there just needs to be much deeper skepticism on a human level, but also on a, on a media level.
1: Jacob, any final moral? So, I, you know, I've interviewed a couple of decent-sized tech people. And when they came into the room, their press people, you know, were kind of bowing down and, uh, you know, really praising them. And they had this air about them that they were kind of better than everyone. And I'm curious for you, as someone who's covered so much tech, did you see that often? too, like as a journalist? And how do you handle something like that, where you have to get through that cult of personality, that kind of the cult of the founder?
2: Well, we ha- we've been through this arc now, right, where they were really celebrated. Back when I was covering technology in 2013, 2014, everybody believed Elizabeth Holmes. And Facebook was great, you know? And so now, five years later, we're in a totally different reality where we're seeing everything kind of in full color. Um, but yeah, it was the, kind of the same thing. These folks are roll deep. They have a lot of people around them whose economic interests are tied up with the company doing well. And so you have to see it for what it is.
4: And not to tie everything back to politics, after Obama won in 2008, a lot of Republicans who worked for McCain and George W. Bush moved to California, got jobs with Facebook, got jobs with like Lyft and Uber and all of these big companies. When these founders travel and talk to reporters, they are rolling deep with not just staff, former political staff who want to create photo ops, who do rapid response, who do crisis communications. Like it is a very thick wall uh, for people to punch through to get to the real core of what who these people are and what these companies do.
2: Okay, thanks, guys. Time for a break. When we come back, why does it seem like Mr. Rogers is having such a moment? The big Tom Hanks movie about him comes out this weekend, and we'll talk to a journalist and podcast host who's covered his life about why Mr. Rogers' ideas are so resonant right now. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Elise Hugh. We'll be right back.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Burlington Stores. Many people go without a winter coat to keep them warm, but Burlington wants to change that with Burlington's annual coat drive hosted in partnership with Delivering Good. Now through January 20th, Burlington is accepting donations of gently worn coats at any of their stores nationwide. As a thank you, shoppers can receive 10% off their entire Burlington purchase. Find a store near you at Burlington.com. Burlington. Style is giving back.
5: Support also comes from State Farm, whose agents know that your car and home are more than just big purchases. They're a big part of your life. You put the time into making them your own. So now it's time to protect them with your own personal State Farm agent. Not only do they truly get you, but they'll be there for you when you need them. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. Sponsored by State Farm. State Farm. Talk to an agent today at 1-800-STATE-FARM or by visiting statefarm.com.
6: Hey there, it's Tamara Keith. And on the NPR Politics Podcast, we bring you into the conversation with NPR's best political reporters as we talk about the biggest news coming out of Washington and from the campaign trail. New episodes drop every weekday afternoon.
2: We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week with Jacob Margolis, science reporter for Southern California Public Radio, and Peter Hamby, who writes for Vanity Fair and hosts Good Luck America on Snapchat. Hey, guys. Hey. Hey. So, Jacob, Peter, we're seeing a lot and hearing a lot about Mr. Rogers lately, even though his show went off the air like 20 years ago. What do y'all remember about Mr. Rogers? Did you watch the show? No. Jacob Margolis.
1: But Tom Hanks, you know what? Tom Hanks has been my favorite actor and person in the
4: world since I was a kid. So I'm I'm happy that. So you
2: grew up with Tom Hanks, not Mr. Rogers.
4: I certainly watched Mr. Rogers when I was young, but Uh I don't have a memory of it. But like Jacob, I think Tom Hanks is a treasure. And I will (laughs) see this movie. Also because Matthew Reese from The Americans is and in he's it, the best. And I adore him.
2: That Tom Hanks film we're talking about is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's out this weekend starring Hanks as Rogers, based on the real life friendship between Mr. Rogers and a journalist profiling him, who will be played by Matthew Reese. That's on the heels of last year's documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, about the life and work of the children's TV host. And naturally, a podcast is out now that goes deep on the man too. It's called Finding Fred. It explores who Mr. Rogers was, what he stood for, and his most enduring messages. Writer and author Carvel Wallace is the host, and we got into why he thinks we're enjoying this Mr. Rogers moment.
6: This is a time in which people take a lot of comfort in things that feel safe and neutral and good. Um, and unproblematic. (laughs) And I also think that that he was working on a very complicated and heavy question, even though he was doing it in a context that felt light and simplistic and that the question he was working on was the question of how to be good in a world where very bad things happen.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Can you explain a little bit about the milieu that Mr. Rogers started his show in? Take us back to that and how it might have some parallels to today.
6: Well, you know, he had a couple of starts. I mean, when he started Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, one of the first public service announcements he did as Mr. Rogers, as Fred Rogers, was to address the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Mm. And the idea of doing a children's television show to address the idea of assassination is so wild. And as he progressed through his show, the social issues that America faced, racism violence, a feeling that the fabric of the country was fraying, that, I think, holds a lot of similarities to what people are feeling now. So that may also be a reason why people are turning to his work.
2: Carvel, I wonder, what was your own relationship with Mr. Rogers? Why did you come to want to make this in the first place?
6: Well, growing up, I remember the feeling of the sound of the trolley, That trolley always resonated with me. Even when I was a little kid, just the sound of it. It just triggered some feeling of magic and safety and love in me.
3: Now, last time in the neighborhood of make-believe...
6: You know, a lot of his work was buttressed by um, a lot of theory, child development theory, which the University of Pittsburgh at the time was leading in. And one of the things that he learned from that work was that transitions are incredibly important. And so the way the show was structured is that he transitioned from his entrance to the home.
3: It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine?
6: And then a the transition into the land of make-believe where problems were faced and addressed in this kind of dreamlike state. We'll pretend about that in the neighborhood of make-believe and then a a transition back to his home where he would process what they had just seen. So they decided that they could use everything for learning. And so for me, I was fascinated with him as a content maker and and the ways in which he dealt with uh, reality and dream states and the minds of children. But I also thought, you know, he does have a certain answer to some of our most pressing moral issues, and I wanted to draw that out and highlight that a little bit.
2: Yeah, I mean, even though everything was sort of buttressed by child development theory, it also seems to me like what he was doing was really quite simple, right? It was this, Mr. Rogers seemed to have this innate understanding um, of our universal need just to be seen, right? To have somebody say, I see you, I -hmm. accept you as who you are. He said it again and again.
3: Mm -hmm. It's you I like It's not the things you wear It's not the way you do your hair But it's you I like
2: Why does that hit so many of us right in the feels?
6: Well, I think a lot of this had to do with the fact that he was a religious person, but he was also interfaith before interfaith was a thing. Hmm. So he took concepts from Islam, concepts from Buddhism, concepts from Judaism. And one of the universal things he found, I think, was that he believed that a great deal of our destruction and destructive behaviors come from a fundamental feeling that we are not worthy of love that we're not we don't have value unless we acquire things and take things from other people and defeat things
3: the way you are right now the way down deep inside you not the things that hide you not your toys they're just beside you but it's you
6: and so I think that he arrived at this idea that it would be helpful then if, starting when we were very young, if I could help children feel loved and seen and accepted. I hope that you will remember,
3: even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like, it's you yourself, it's you.
2: What do you think Fred Rogers would tell us if he were with us
3: today?
6: You know, I've asked a lot of people that question in the course of our reporting. And everyone who ever knew him has declined to answer that question. And (laughs) I take that seriously. I I do think that he could only do so much. Yeah. And he left it with us to do what we can do. And, you know, he had a vision for television, you know, like he turned on TV when it was new and people were getting hit in the face with pies and kids were being sold soda. And he said, this is absurd. TV shouldn't be like this. It should be this other thing where you visit with the viewers and you see them and they see you and you're honest with them and you're connected with them. And as it happened, he was very successful doing that, but TV did not follow his lead. No, Everything else in children's television went the opposite direction. So he was really swimming upstream in almost every sense. And I think people, because we have unhealed children that live in us that were not seen and that were not loved, I think we're still looking for a child's solution to being an adult. So perhaps what he might tell us is that And he said this, this is something that he said in the last thing he ever did on television, which was a PSA after 9-11.
3: I'm just so proud of all of you who have grown up with us. And I know how tough it is some days to look with
6: hope and confidence on the months and years ahead. And he talked about two very important concepts. One is the idea that it's a Jewish concept. Uh, which means to be repairers of the world.
3: I'm so grateful to you for helping the children in your life to know that you'll do everything you can to keep them safe and to help them express their feelings in ways
6: that will bring healing in many different neighborhoods. And the second concept that he talked about is that he spoke to adults, and he said, I'm so proud of you and who you've become. It's such a good feeling to know that we're lifelong friends. And so even there, he's saying to people, you are free from the burden to have to prove yourself. And so with that out of the way, perhaps you can focus on repairing the world.
2: Carvel Wallace, um I'm really enjoying the podcast. It's called Finding Fred. Carvel Wallace, thank you so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed this.
3: It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood. A beautiful day for a neighbor.
6: Would you be mine? Could you be
3: mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood. A neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine?
2: A huge thanks again to Carvel Wallace, host of the podcast Finding Fred. We're going to take one more break here, and when we come back, play along with us in Who Said That? It's my favorite part of the week. And see how closely you followed the news of the week. I'm Elise Hugh, and you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR.
3: Won't you please you please, please, won't you be my neighbor?
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community.
4: My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer.
0: To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org.
5: Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone.
2: I know we'd all love the holidays to be this happy, stress-free, joyful time, but let's be real, that is not always the case. NPR's Life Kit is answering your holiday questions and helping you navigate family dynamics all season long. New episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. Listen and subscribe to Life Kit All Guides. We're back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Elise Hugh, in for Sam Sanders, here this week with Jacob Margolis, reporter for Southern California Public Radio. Hey, Jacob. Hey. And Peter Hamby, who writes for Vanity Fair and hosts Good Luck America on Snapchat. Hey, Peter. Hello. It's time for a game we call Who Said That? Ooh, that. It's a simple game. I will share a quote from the week. You guess who said it, or at least the story I'm referring to. Best two out of three. If you win, you know what you get? Everything. You get nothing.
4: Not even a mug? Not a
2: thing. thing. (laughs) Nothing. All right, here we go. First quote. It was so long ago, no one is going to know the difference.
1: It was so long ago, no one's going to know the difference.
2: (laughs) The guys are just staring at me. How about a hint? Yes, please. Okay. It involves an actress who some people would call a pretty woman.
4: Julia Roberts? Yes. Can you give me some context clues? (laughs) A couple journalists here.
2: (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to tell you. News came out this month that a studio executive once suggested Julia Roberts play Harriet Tubman in a movie.
4: Oh, that doesn't seem appropriate. Oh, that's really bad. But.
2: As the quote goes, it was so long ago no one's going to know the difference. Wah,
4: wah. What
1: she Sorry. said she said that in response to No,
2: she didn't say anything. This was the studio executive oh, who okay. reportedly said this. W- Why would... Here's the backstory. In an interview this month with Focus Features, screenwriter Gregory Allen Howard, who wrote the recent movie Harriet, about Harriet Tubman, said that back in 1994, when he started developing the project, that's how long it takes to develop a project around here, he heard from a studio executive that Julia Roberts should play Harriet. (laughs) Because I guess Julia Roberts was really in her heyday then, and it was the 90s, and the 90s were like a much less... Racially conscious time? I mean,
4: that is insane.
1: (laughs) All right.
2: Y'all got zero on that. Uh. It's tied at zero,
4: zero. (laughs) We're,
1: you know.
2: Okay. Quote number two. It has been what I would describe as a constant sore in the family. We all knew him, and I think that if we have a conversation about it, we're all left with the same thing. What on earth happened?
1: Clue, please.
2: Okay. This would have been more effective had I delivered it in a British accent.
1: Oh, is it about Prince Andrew? It was Prince Andrew. Ding! Oh, Prince Andrew said that. Yes. Oh, I thought he was the sore.
2: No, it was part of such a disastrous interview with the BBC uh, about his association with Jeffrey Epstein. Prince Andrew has since withdrawn from royal duties, quote, for the foreseeable future. What was he
4: doing anyway? He's been
2: disappeared, yeah. basically.
4: I mean, having started to binge this season of The Crown, yeah. my <laughs> idea of royal duties that you would be dismissed from are like speaking to like factory openings yes. and going to equestrian events. Ribbon cuttings. No one's going to miss Prince Andrew, in other words. Yeah.
2: All right. Um, that one. One point to Jacob Margolis. Ah, yes. Okay. Okay. Congrats. One to nothing.
1: This is why I came here this morning.
2: Quote number three. It was not me! Five exclamation points. Ha! And I didn't hear it when I was speaking. Who said that?
1: Hint. Please. He's from
2: California. And he's a lawmaker. Why don't we play the tape? Let's go to tape. Let's go to tape. Yes,
1: please.
0: Okay. The evidence is uncontradicted that the president used taxpayer dollars to ask the Ukrainians to help him cheat an election.
4: Oh. Eric Swalwell, oh, Peter Hamby. Eric Swalwell. This was a fantastic story and a really like welcome. Twitter Just, needed the break. Yeah, it was a little bit of a yeah. breather from the impeachment hearings this week. The best is that a reporter from BuzzFeed DM Swalwell, and Swalwell's mm-hmm. like, I've DM'd with him. He like he's on all platforms. He responds to reporters. <laughs> he, like, is on the record <laughs> denying the fart in her DMs, and she screenshotted it. Um, I think an NBC producer, this was on Hardball and MSNBC, came out and said it was a mug moving across the table. <laughs> oh my God. That did
2: not sound like a
4: mug. No. no! Do you believe him? It a fart. Sounded like it, sounded like, it sounded like a fart mug. A <laughs> mug that farts. Oh, yeah.
2: Swalwell responded to the show's tweet claiming, in all caps, total exoneration.
1: That's pretty good. How many comms teams got together to go ahead and respond to that situation? I know. But you two tied. You know, you're a great competitor. Thanks, Jacob. Oh,
2: they're shaking hands. Appreciate you. That concludes Who Said That. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Each Friday, we ask you to share with us the best thing that happened to you all week. We encourage you to brag, and you do. Let's take a listen.
3: This is Melissa in Abington, Pennsylvania. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that my dog, Sophie, qualified to be a therapy dog. So pretty soon we will start visiting hospitals and nursing homes and other places where people would like to pet a happy dog with a wagging tail. Thanks, have a good week. This is Katie and the best
5: thing that happened to me this week is I passed the California bar exam, yay! I have two small children and this week I slept through the night for the first time in over a
6: year. The best part of my week was proposing to my best friend on our two week vacation in Japan.
5: The best part of
1: my week was that I came home from work and my 22-month-old daughter asked me, how was your day? The best thing that happened to me this week was in my acting class,
2: one of my fellow actors just took the time at the beginning of class to say, hey Cleo, I'm really glad that I know you.
6: This is Barbara from New York. What I'm happy about this week is that my husband is home and doing well after a double bypass and a valve replacement.
3: This is Megan from
2: Nashville, and the best part of my week was getting to save a life by donating a kidney to a fellow animal rescue volunteer. Both of our surgeries went off without a hitch, and Kenny the Kidney is kicking butt in his new home. I hope you have a great week.
3: Have a good one. I love
2: the show. Bye-bye. Thank you to those listeners, Melissa, Katie, Magara, Kelly, Inez, Cleo, Barbara, and... Megan. And thank you for sharing your best thing with us. We listen to all of them, even if we can't play them all here on the show. To share your own, record an audio file and email it to the show at samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. That's a wrap. I want to say thanks again to our guests for being here today. Jacob Margolis, reporter for Southern California Public Radio. Thanks. And Peter Hamby, who writes for Vanity Fair and hosts Good Luck America on Snapchat. Thanks again, Peter. Thank you, Elise. It's Been a Minute was produced this week by Brett Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Our editors are Kitty Isley and Alex McCall. Our director of programming, Steve Nelson. Our engineer is Josh Newell. And the senior vice president of programming at NPR is Anya Grunman. I'm Elise Hughes. Sam Sanders is back next week. Thanks for listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR.
1: Hi, everyone. We are Elise's daughters: Ava, Issa, Luna. Say, I'm baby Luna. I'm baby Luna. Let's start the O. Let's start the O. Let's start the show. Let's start the. And just
2: say it. Let's not say it.
1: Let's just say, let's start the show. I can't do some. Let's start the show. Great job.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR.
5: Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR.